Welcome to Deckert's LIBORcast, where industry leaders come to talk LIBOR transition. Hello and welcome to today's edition of the Deckert LIBORcast. This is the 15th in our series. I'm Matt Hayes, your host. I'm a partner in the Global Finance Group, and I lead the Asset Finance and Securitization team here at Deckert and our LIBOR task force. Today, I'm pleased to be joined by our guests from Freddie Mac, Geraldine Hayhurst, the Vice President and Deputy General Counsel, Mortgage Securities and Strategic Corporate Initiatives, Amiz Nanji, Vice President, Asset and Liability Management and Assistant Treasurer, and finally, Cindy Schwartz, the Director of Multifamily Capital Markets uh, Securitization, all from Freddie Mac. And I should note that the views expressed by Amiz, Cindy, and Geraldine are their own views and not the views of Freddie Mac, and that they reserve the right to change their minds as new developments unfold. Welcome to the program. Thank you. Pleasure to be here. Thanks for having us. So let's dive right in. I'll ask the question that I uh, ask in most of our podcasts on a scale of Y2K to the end of the world. Where does the LIBOR transition rank? Uh, I'll take that. Uh, good afternoon, Matt, and thank you for having us. Uh, look, it isn't the end of the world. Having said that, it does require steady, thoughtful planning and process. It's not just simply, as, as some market participants have indicated, that what's the big deal? You're pointing to one index, just stop pointing to that and go point to another one. It does require a thought process. So with that process, do you expect the transition to become more chaotic over the next year or less? It's going to be different for every firm. You know, those that have started the process and, and have spent some resources thinking about these things, uh, it should not be chaotic. It's, it's doable. Uh, there's enough resources made available in the industry. There's fine folks at Deckard who can help you with the legal resources. There's, there's other folks at, uh, at other firms that can help you with operational resources. And certainly the ARC has put out a lot of information. So really, if you're a firm that's started this process and you're going to engage in guidelines put out by the Fed, no new LIBOR issuances at the end of this year, you should be able to get there. Uh, and again, we'll get into the nuances of how we can get there, but, but, but it's possible. It's great advice. With the recent announcement of an extension, do you think the end of LIBOR will be pushed back even more, or is this timeline set? Well, we we hope not. Uh, you know, we have no reason to think that it will be. Uh, as you know, uh, the ISDA spreads have been set. So in some sense, a pre-cessation event has already been declared. And for most LIBOR, U.S. dollar LIBOR tenors, that's going to be June 30th, 2023. So it's it feels unlikely that it's going to get postponed even more. So you've been a pioneer in originating SOFR-based loans. What challenges have you had in doing that? Are you seeing widespread acceptance? Uh, I can jump in here. Um, from the multifamily side of things, You know, we had a very smooth rollout of our SOFR-based loan product late last year, and we stopped purchasing loans indexed to LIBOR at the end of 2020. Um, our floating rate loan volume is at record levels. We've, we've definitely not had any trouble with demand. Um, and honestly, you know, as far as challenges, I would say, you know, it was all about readiness. We spent a lot of time and effort preparing and making sure our Optigo lenders and servicers were prepared. And that work really paid off. And I can I can speak to our other products. Look, uh, the GSEs were one of the first few institutions that came out with SOFA debt offerings. Fannie Mae was the first to market and, and we followed closely. Uh, you know, so it took a little while at that time to figure out what does an overnight index mean? You know, there's different conventions that can be used. We decided to go with that in arrears concept. And, you know, we'll talk more about this as we deep dive into it. 
but what we quickly found was was there's no answers, and, and just like when you when you're doing something new, there's a lot of outreach that had to be done. We had to work with our investors. We had to make sure that the vendor systems were ready. On the systems point, what did you have to do to be ready? You know, you would think uh, compounding your interest is something you could do in Excel, but you'd be shocked how many different results you can get depending on what conventions you use. You know, how do you compound weekends? You know, so there's a lot of nuances associated with this, these things. So what did you learn by being first to market? Because we were first to market, there was a learning curve. Um, but I do think the industry has come along a long way. Uh, Cindy talked about our multifamily experience. Certainly, they were leaders in uh, in the securitization space, and and they have now transitioned over to the loan space as well, and they've made it work. So your challenges are going to be one: uh, what convention of sofa to use, um, and then depending on what what you pick, the operational and outreach elements of it. So everyone's going to have a different experience. Uh, like I said, we were first to market, so so we we probably felt more pain than other people, but we got it done, and and if we can get it done, everyone else can too. So now that you've done it, do you think the market will more broadly adopt SOFR before the end of LIBOR? We hope so. As you know, there's a lot of competing indices that have come up in the marketplace. Most of them claim to be IOSCO compliant. So it's really going to depend on what every institution picks. SOFR is robust um, in its overnight nature. It, it has a lot of underlying transactions. Uh, it checks all the boxes for a reference rate, but it does have limitations, right? Today, there is no term so far, and today there is no credit component to it. We don't think we need either, uh, but different institutions may have different expectations on what they want their reference rate to look like. So we think so far is the right index to go to, but it's hard to speculate on, uh, on whether or not the entire industry will adopt it as a, as a, as a reference rate. So having gone through some of the transition process yourself, what concerns you most about the transition process and what remains? Yeah, and like I said, like the biggest challenge we had pretty early on is deciding what convention of SOFA to use. Today, at a broad level, we have two different conventions. Uh, we have SOFA averages, and, and they're in arrears or in advance. Now, within in arrears and in advance, you can have simple or compounded averages. But let's just say these two big conventions exist, the advantage of an inner ears is it's more forward-looking in nature. So from that standpoint, to the extent that you're using SOFA to finance the purchases of your securities, it matches perfectly. But inner ears comes at its own price. And, and that price is you don't know the rate. You don't know the interest until the end of the period. So it requires a lot of system enhancements. It requires a lot of system changes. And in some instances, it may not be possible to do so. For one of our products, we found out that our payment systems needed to know at least 15 days in advance what the coupon payment was going to be. In a true in arrears format, which the derivative market uses, you don't know what the payment is until two days after the coupon payment is due. So in those instances, you don't have a choice. You don't have the ability to use in arrears. So then the question becomes, are you able to use the in advance format? And the, the beauty about in advance is the Fed publishes 30, 60, 90-day averages on their website. So it's a simple point and click. You, you get the rate. Uh, you can know the rate just like LIBOR today in advance, but it is backward-looking in there. I think the market is still struggling with what convention of SOFA to use. That concerns us. You know, those questions should have been answered at least a year ago, if not two. 
do you think the market will follow your lead in in the convention game, or do you think there's you know likelihood that it may adopt other conventions? Look, uh, it depends on who you are. To be fair, what we use at Freddie Mac mostly is the one month index and the lag between an in arrears and an in advance. The economic cost of the lag using the one month index is minimal. It's almost negligible to a point where it's not worth making the system changes uh, to go to an in arrears. But if you're an institution that uses a six month or a three month index or even a 12 month index and in advance may not work for you. So you will have to build to an inner years in those situations if you don't want to give up significant economic slippages. So we do hope that the market follows our lead, at least as far as the one month index is concerned, because we have shown there's robust investor demand. We have shown that it can work for both the loans as well as securities. But, you know, for those other institutions that use longer index resets, they have different questions to answer. Yeah. And from the commercial side, right? So we've received very positive feedback from the CMBS market on the model that we have determined. And since floating rate um, loans, which is really what we're passing through, right, is interest on floating rate loans, you know, we have to be able to bill for that. We have to be able to bill the borrowers. And for that, we need an in advance rate. Um, and we don't want to have a basis mismatch. So to avoid a basis mismatch, we really need the securities and the loans to operate off of the same in advance rate. And, you know, to me, the point, we've, we've chosen the uh, 30 day SOFR average. And that's really working well for us at this point. We've talked a little bit about operational challenges. Which has been most significant for you? Have you gotten all these you know, back-end mechanics working now? And do you feel pretty confident that you've got the systems in place to make it work well? Yeah, I, I, I can answer that. I, I think the answer is yes, quite simply yes. Uh, for those products, especially where we've used the in-advance approach, uh, it's been seamless. Uh, we've had to make minimal changes just because, like I said before, today the way LIBOR works, LIBOR is an in-advance rate. So people are just used to everything. Now, we also have had experiences as investors and we've bought some unsecured debt that use an in arrears concept. In those situations, what we found is there are significant challenges um, and it comes down to there is no standard in the in arrears space. You know, some market participants use a shifted one day look back, two day look back. Some people use lockout concepts and lockouts. You you basically lose out on the sofa sets for a few days. And and, and you, you see different people use different weekend compounding conventions. So so what we found there is depending on the issuer name that we buy, our interest payments that our systems calculate may not tie out to the interest payment that the issuer calculates. So th that requires manual intervention. So so to answer your question, as an issuer, we have faced almost no issues um, setting these things up operationally, doing outreach. Investors understand it. Uh, there's a robust market for it. But in the inner ear space as an investor, we've had different experiences. Do you have any concerns about the broader market moving to another rate? And did the extension have any effect on that decision? You know, at Freddie Mac right now, we don't anticipate looking at another index you know, if there's demand for another index that becomes the standard sometime down the road, you know, we will evaluate that index, but we're not looking at another right now. At this point, we don't know what the broader markets will do, but but we don't have any intention to move to a different rate. One thing we've heard is concerns around SOFR not being a credit sensitive rate. Do you, do you share that view or do you think that's uh, uh, not as much of an issue as some may think? Look, I... I've, I've made this argument in the past, which is 
I understand that there's a need in the market for a credit sensitive rate, but it's more of a want than a need. Uh, you know, today, the credit sensitive indices that are being brought up or even LIBOR for that matter, what it represents is the bank credit. And as an issuer, not just us, someone else who's a non-bank issuer, our products will always trade at a spread to those bank credits, right? So it will be a plus or a minus to that spread. So from that standpoint, our investors, in theory, already have the ability to model what that spread is. And once you can model the relative spread between us and some other institution, it's easy to model that spread between us and the reference rate. And everyone who buys and sells securities that are not directly bank securities has that ability. So do some institutions need a credit component? I can't answer that. I can tell you from our standpoint, we don't need it. And certainly we don't think our investors uh, need it. Everyone wants it, but we don't know if we need it. So we saw yesterday an announcement from the ARC on Term Sofer, its use cases, how it will be developed. Do you, do you have a view on that announcement? Sure. I mean, I, I mean, there have been several different announcements, but I think what you're referencing to is the announcement that followed up the March 10th announcement where the ARC laid out key principles uh, that it's going to look at in whether or not it recommends a term rate. And we think, you know, we, we, we agree with those. Uh, you know, one of the things the ARC has said, I think this is key principle number two, is they want to be able to endorse a rate that will exist over time and that over time component is critical. And then, you know, the other principles call for making sure that the term rate has the robustness of the overnight, meets the principles of the overnight rate. And the third and the most important one is the limited scope of use. I think the ARC has been very clear uh, from the get-go that the term rate is going to have limited scope of use. So the ARC is working through these criteria. They're, they're working to determine what parameters need to be achieved based on these guiding principles for them to endorse a term rate. And, and we're fully supportive of that. And we'll, we'll wait and see what happens. I think they've come out and said they're not going to endorse a term rate by June 30th. But that doesn't mean they're not going to endorse a term rate at all. Uh, you know, we could see something maybe later this year or maybe next year. So I guess that's the prognostication question. Do you expect it to be available? And, you know, when it becomes available, are you planning to use it? And, and what do you think the timeline for availability is? So I'll start with a comment on timeline for availability. Like I said, I think the ARC was very clear uh, in its announcement that it's not going to be June. But then as the criteria is met, it could happen at any point. So like I said, it could happen by end of this year or it could happen sometime next year. Um, it doesn't mean it's not going to happen. There have been some news publications out there saying, oh, the ARC doesn't plan to endorse the term rate at all. And we don't believe that to be the case. Uh, we think all that stuff is to be determined. Now, whether or not we will use it, you know, I'll turn it over to our chief legal expert here, uh, Geraldine. Well, I think it'll hinge on what the ARC endorses and for what use case. If the ARC endorses the term rate for only legacy products, then we're limited in what we can do with our SOFR index book because we have retest language in those documents for the most part that would have looked to us to jump to term if that was endorsed by the ARC. So our legacy book would have the benefit of the term rate, but not the you know new product book. And we'd have to look at that in terms of what our investors were expecting and whether their securities would end up orphaned. Um, and further, legacy is comprised of both LIBOR index contracts that have the ARC fallback language and those that do not. 
So if the ARC endorses term for legacy products, you, you can have a situation where you have a, a legacy LIBOR index contract that has the ARC fallback language in it, which would require retesting and a jump to a term rate. So once again, you could have a book that some of the contracts have the benefit of a term rate, others do not. And so as a business, you have to look at all that and say, you know, what is best for our customers ultimately. So some seem to be waiting for term SOFR to be available before moving away from LIBOR. Since you've already moved, maybe it's your view is that it's not as wise to do that, but wonder what you think of, of those in the market that may be waiting for that. Look, I think the regulators have been really clear. They have cited safety and soundness concerns for any new LIBOR issuances past the end of this year. So from that standpoint, if you're waiting for term to come about, you're really playing a dangerous game because, like I said, right at the onset of this conversation, it's not as simple as just saying, oh, look at that, a rate has popped up. Let me just point my systems to it. You know, uh, you need some lead time. You need to know where to point. You need to know where to look. You need to educate your investors. You need to make sure vendors know. So I hope people are not waiting. I'll even take it a step further, Matt. Uh, we don't think we need a term rate at all, at least on our side where we use the one month index. We generally don't know why we need a term rate. The market is sophisticated. The market knows how to price the, the one month lag that exists between in arrears and in advance. And really, in an ideal world, uh, we have a term rate and the term rate is used for every product, uh, just like LIBOR is, uh, legacy, new, whatever. But I think the second best outcome is, is we don't use term for anything. We've, we've obviously seen some more developments in the legislative front. The New York legislation was passed by the New York State Legislature, signed by Governor Cuomo. It allows for instruments that only have a LIBOR-based rate and no fallback language otherwise to effectively transition to SOFR automatically by operation of law. Uh, what's your view of that legislation, and is it a good development? I'll take that one. Uh, we at Freddie Mac, like the market, think this was a very positive development. We obviously have a significant number of contracts that are tied to New York law. So in our view, that was positive for this transition, and it can only help. Um, obviously, it doesn't get us the whole way there. And so we're looking to see what happens on the federal front. Since you raised the, the federal front, I'm curious what you think is is the legislation we've seen working with uh, Representative Sherman's office, I think the industry and some trade associations have been working on that legislation and, and at least providing sort of a functional market uh, views on it. Uh, do you think we need that with the New York legislation in place or is that just confuse the question? Logically, yes. Not every contract or loan is governed by New York state law. So you run the risk of having a patchwork solution if the states start enacting their own legislation. Um, Chairman Powell in February said that federal legislation is the best answer. And recently, um, last week, our regulator and conservator, the FHFA, expressed a similar opinion in front of the House Financial Services Committee. So we are just as curious as the rest of the market on where the federal legislation goes. Is there any other sort of concerns you have about the, the transition process in the market that, that listeners should be thinking about? It's important that people start working on this. Uh, you know, we're in April. And if you really believe that, that there's going to be enforcements from the regulators at the end of this year, you know, you have give or take seven or eight months to deal with this. And based on our experience, it takes that long. You know, sometimes 
what you find in an organization and and we certainly had our share of those experiences is 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 you find dependencies in systems that you did not anticipate in the planning stage right so you need some time as you're doing your testing to fix these downstream impacts uh you know you depending on on what convention of sofa you use uh, you have to think about your impacts to your tax and accounting systems like let me give you an example if you, if you picked an in arrears concept where you don't know the coupon until the coupon payment is due imagine that coupon payment was due on march 31st uh, and you won't know what that payment was until april 2nd now you've closed your financials you know so you have to think about potentially going and updating some of that so there's a lot of these nuances and the devils in the detail and and that's why as an organization what helped us we can share our experience what we did is we created a a whole steering committee that was an enterprise wide steering committee we had we had product owners um that represented each product that knew their investor base uh, but they still did their own outreach at a corporate level we had program management office we had a chief legal counsel appointed to it geraldine here and and you know it had to be an enterprise wide effort because one of the things we were conscious of is we did not want to create piecemeal solutions for every different product that we had you know we wanted some sort of consistency across our products to leverage the operational systems otherwise otherwise you just double your work triple your work for a marginal benefit right so it's about getting these product heads together uh, getting the legal counsels together getting the operations technology folks in one space and it just takes time you back to your earlier question between y2k and end of the world look if you plan well this can be done but if you don't plan uh, you're going to find a lot of surprises along the way and and you know the, the challenge here has been there is no one convention right it's not it's not a plug and play solution and depending on what product you have depending on who your investors are you may find that you may want to do different things um, and some of them may require creation of systems that don't exist and those just take time and money by the way which which you need to budget for so and Matt you you'll know you know from from your experience just reviewing old legacy legal docs takes a ton of effort um so you know it, it takes time uh, i was going to say that i mean one of the first things we did was catalog all of the various contracts that were in existence over time which was a monumental task because legal language changed over time and we had to make sure that it wasn't the libor transition provisions that were changing and so we created a database put every type of contract in there for every product arms uh, multifamily floating rate notes who had the discretion to transition the the index i mean we 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 spent a significant amount of pregame time making sure we understood our landscape in order to even begin the discussion of what the transition plan would actually be and so if folks are waiting to do that they're going to find that they're they're sort of behind because they don't actually know their own landscape and so i would recommend that if folks or companies haven't started that pre-work to at least get started with that and understand where their limitations may be uh in terms of contract language in transitioning. That's an excellent point. Uh we've certainly worked on plenty of those projects here at Deckert and it is a monumental task and each additional data point requires, you know, potentially a lot of work to determine and there's some solutions that can help but it, it, there's a lot of nuance to it. That's right. Is there um some issues that we need to worry about in terms of caps? Yeah, so you know the question you originally asked was, you know, are there things that were concerning us and on the multifamily side at least, 
we are concerned and, and trying to work through right now what to do about the possibility of not being able to get replacement LIBOR caps for our existing LIBOR contracts that won't convert until later, right? So the caps all have terms that expire, and when they expire, they have to be replaced. And, you know, if the LIBOR-based loans haven't converted to SOFR yet, we're going to need LIBOR-based caps. And, you know, the information we're getting or what we're hearing from the market is that they may not be available. And and I'd like to point out that in the regulatory guidance that's come out, um, I think the regulators have, have said that it's okay to continue to engage in life. And this is not the, what they said. They said it more eloquently and more in a more sophisticated way, but I'm just using more layman terms, uh, that as long as they're risk-reducing in nature, they're okay to engage in. So, so we don't think, you know, these LIBOR caps are bought for protection. They're bought for hedging reasons. We think it's exempt, but that's not what we're hearing from the market. So that's something that, that we're working through. We've also heard from, from some of our folks that, um, that regardless of whether or not it's exempt, they may not offer them. So, so it, it's, it's definitely a concern that we have to work through. And, and, you know, it's all in the lab right now, but it's something that multifamily for sure is concerned about. And Matt, this this goes back to your early point. What should the market be concerned about? This, right? That liquidity in LIBOR will go away. So to the extent that even if you are an unregulated entity, and if if, it's, if your expectation is, look, I'll just continue trading LIBOR through end of 2023, what you may find is liquidity in LIBOR just goes away after the end of this year. So that's something else you've got to be concerned about. All great points. Thank you. And thank you to the Freddie team for joining. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. We hope you enjoyed listening. Please check out our LiveOrCast channel to hear other insightful discussions with market industry leaders, including regulators, trade associations, and market participants about the work ahead in the LIBOR transition process. Thanks again, and have a great day.